Let's pray. Dear gracious Father in heaven, we bow before you again this beautiful Lord's Day and thank you for allowing us this opportunity again to worship you. And I just thank you for reminding us through the song of the faithfulness that you show to us that we can hold on to you even though the storms of life may get rough at times, that we know that our anchor is firm in you. And just help us to go forward with this week to apply what we learned as Mel shared this morning. I just pray that you would anoint him in a special way. Pray you grant him clarity of thought as he shares what you have laid upon his heart today. Just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, greetings in Jesus' name and welcome to each one here. Several visitors here would like you to worship with us. Good to have you here. This morning's message is a bit unusual. Uh, last fall, several of our men's meeting agenda consisted the identifying and writing down the values of our church. What are our values as a church? What are your values as a family? What are your values as a business owner? something to think about and it was <clears throat> generated some interesting discussion that uh, took us quite a few meetings and we did uh, get to write those down and uh, what we'd like to do as pastors is we were each assigned one of those and uh, we'll be preaching on those sometime in the near future. I think we got it figured out to where we can kind of do it in order. And so I'm just going to briefly read through these values, and uh, I uh, was assigned the first one. The first one is a relationship with Jesus Christ and a love for his word. Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, Lord and Savior and head of the church, being revealed to us by his written word and dwelling, us, dwelling in us by his spirit. And the next one is a commitment to scriptures. The Holy Bible is, is inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient revelation given to us so that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ. Number three, being together. Our mutual love for Christ and his word draws us together to worship, study his word, and encourage and help each other to live for him. Number four, families. We believe godly families and marriages are the strength of our society and the church. We seek to be a family to those who do to do not, we seek to be a family to those who do not have strong, godly family connections. And number five, being salt and light to the world. We do this when we display the love of Christ in a way, in the way we love and care for each other and by building relationships with people in our communities so they can see Christ in our lives and we can bring the gospel to them. We also seek opportunity to give support to be involved in missions, and take the message of the gospel out to the world. So those are the five core values that <clears throat> we have sort of written down, and we have written down and come up as, as some of the values that we hold dear, and we certainly want to continue living those values and supporting one another in that. And the first one is, like I said, a relationship with Jesus Christ and a love for his words. Jesus Christ as our personal savior and head of the church being revealed to us by his written word and dwelling in us by his spirit. 
I've taken most of those points and sort of broke them down and want to, want to expand on, on those a bit. And so I was, first of all, drawn to, my mind went to the um, account that we have in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus privately at night to speak to him about this very thing, and Jesus explained that to him. Turn with me, if you will, in John chapter 3, but for a bit of context, I'm going to back in the chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, and read the last three verses of that chapter, and on into chapter 3 to the end of chapter 17. And this is a... Um, Notice kind of an interesting conversation that Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, had with Jesus. Uh, let's read here, John, uh, John chapter 2, beginning in the end of the chapter 23, and on into chapter 3 to the end of 17. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which was born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. <clears throat> we see here, Jesus had sort of an interesting conversation with this Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, this man was a very religious man who was sincerely seeking for truth. And we see here in the setting, Jesus was at the Passover in Jerusalem. That happened once a year. 
At this time, and, and must have made some waves and drew some attention when he, of course, threw the, overthrew the money changers' tables. We just, we just, we didn't read that, but just previously in chapter 2. And it caught the attention of many people, including the rulers and the Pharisees, and especially Nicodemus, who came to visit him at night so that he could have this uninterrupted conversation with Jesus. There's a lot of ideas as to why he came at night, and I think this kind of satisfies my curiosity the most. He came to Jesus so he could have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with Jesus, probably no deadline, no time frame, except getting to bed late that night, but he wanted to talk to Jesus personally one-on-one -on -one with plenty of time and no interruptions, and I, I like that idea. That's probably... One of the main reasons, maybe he didn't want to be seen by his peers, we don't know, but at any rate, we'll see, and I'm not going to get into that, but later on in his life, at Jesus, I think it was at the burial, Nicodemus was one of those who went and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus so they could do a proper burial. So Nicodemus, I think, truly was a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I think this conversation may well, very well have led him to that point. And so that's one of the, one of the uh, values that we certainly hold here at Crystal Valley, and I want to certainly encourage that and continue that. But that's like a, take a closer look at Nicodemus. Who was, who were the Pharisees? It says, he was a ruler of the Jews and noticed, verse 2, that uh, Jesus as being from God. We also see that he was a, Teacher, Jesus calls him a master. That's translated a teacher of Israel. Verse 10, Jesus acknowledges that. You're a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? He was a Pharisee, and they were known for the strictest observance of all the rites and ceremonies of their law. And notice also the pronoun we. Nicodemus uses that we, indicating there were others that also noticed Jesus and the miracles that he did. He was also a man of high moral character, deep religious hunger, as we can see, and yet so spiritually blind. So much just that, that we see Jesus in verse 7, he says, Marvel not that I said unto you. Here we have this Jewish Pharisee who had very likely lived a good, clean life, and upheld the law to the highest degree. And Jesus is saying, you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God or to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was probably thinking, really, Jesus? Uh, maybe some Gentile from some hick town or some Samaritan, but me, I'm a Pharisee. I think that's what Jesus is addressing there in verse 7 when he notices the surprise and astonishment on his face that Jesus is actually suggesting them of him. But, you know, I, I, I find myself thinking a lot like Nicodemus. I was probably raised a lot like Nicodemus, maybe not entirely, but similarly, in, in a disciplined home surrounded by the same type of people, who placed a lot of emphasis on a certain code of ethics and laws. And like Nicodemus, I thought too that that's good enough, isn't it? Isn't that going to do? Jesus says no. That in and of itself will not 
allow you to see or enter the kingdom of heaven. And notice those two, I notice those two words that Jesus used. Verse 3, he says, uh, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, he uses the word he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Of course, and I, I couldn't help but notice in and, I mean, it's logical. Yeah, the word see in this case would mean to perceive, to ascertain, or to experience. Obviously, if you can't perceive, ascertain its truth, or experience it, you will not be able to enter. And I thought that's interesting that Jesus used those two different words in this case. But back to Nicodemus, like I said, I, I, I found myself certainly thinking a lot like him because I think my, my upbringing and, and uh, my heritage was probably a lot like his in many ways. Well, let's take a look at Jesus' explanation of this. And I don't, I don't of course, Jesus being who he was, notice too in the previous chapter a couple of times, it says he, he didn't do this and this because he knew all men. Uh, verse 25, um, needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus didn't quite trust other people's testimony of him because we're often swayed by things that we like to hear and things that we like to see, right? Jesus knew how men think, how people think. But here comes Nicodemus, attracted to him by the miracles and obviously seeing something, some divine, something supernatural in Jesus and wanted to hear more about it. And I don't know what Nicodemus expected to hear, but I have an idea it did not include this. Had no idea Jesus would bring this up. But Jesus gets right to the heart. Except the man being born again. Can you imagine this just going right over his head, totally not even having a clue what Jesus was saying, which he was. He was thinking a physical birth. Here he was, a grown man, I don't have any indication of his age, but I'm sure he was an adult because this took a lot of training and education, years that they had to do. It wasn't a child's education. It was not eighth grade or anything like that. And Nicodemus is so surprised that he's suggesting he needs to be born again. And Jesus, of course, explains in verse 5, unless you're born of a physical birth and of a spiritual birth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Certainly, uh, I, like, I like the comparisons that Jesus used of this. First of all, he's speaking of being born spiritually into a family. Yeah, we were all born physically, of water as he calls it, into an earthly family. But this is like being born into a spiritual family, as he says there in verse 6. Uh, obviously, that's, that's true. If you're not born physically, you can't be born spiritually. He also refers to it like the wind. Um, you know, the wind blows just like the, the Holy Spirit is invisible, uh, but it's powerful. I just read about some fierce wind in Mississippi, some damage that was done. You know, yeah, I'm sure you can see the black clouds and so forth. But the wind blows, and you can't really see it. You just see things moving that were affected by it. And I like the account there in Acts 2, and I don't think I'll turn to that, where we have the Holy Spirit 
coming on, uh, on the disciples at Pentecost, and it says there was a, it was like the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Again, I, there, there wasn't anything um, visible except the effects of it. The wind blows some heavy objects, especially during the tornado. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of it. And just like the Holy Spirit moving at Pentecost in our lives, it's, it's, we see the effects of it. You know, Jesus reprimands him in verses 10 through 12 for his blindness. But, and he goes on to tell him, if you cannot understand these earthly illustrations, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You know, too many of these leaders did not want to see the truth. They did not want to know. And they claimed they held tightly onto their heritage as being Moses' children and yet could not believe in Jesus. And Jesus is coming down on him for that. Verse 14, he also refers it to the serpent on a pole taken from Numbers 21. I'm going to turn to that. A couple of verses I want to read in Numbers 21. When Israel in their journey through the wilderness, was in a position, well, God brought on them some poisonous snakes that bit and infected many people, and a lot of people died until God instructed him to make a brass serpent, put it on a pole up high so people could see it, and those who looked at it were healed. Just the faith of looking at that serpent healed. I'm going to read a couple of verses. Um, uh, Numbers 21, verse 4. <clears throat> and as he journeyed from Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to encompass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents on the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the Lord, therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he will take away the serpent from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a, if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Jesus uses this also as an illustration. Of course, we know that later on Jesus was also raised on a pole, and those who looked on him by faith could live. And even us today, I never saw that scene, neither did any of you. But by faith, if we look at it, we too will live as we accept them. He also uses the, the example of light versus darkness. <clears throat> we have Jesus, of course, in many cases referred to as the, the light of the world. And all who come to the light leave the darkness behind. 
you know, the natural man loves darkness and does not want to persist and, and wants to persist in his evil deeds. But so it's the moral and spiritual blindness that keeps them loving darkness and hating the light. And of course, we have Jesus, many cases, being referred to as the light of, and even uh, identifies himself as being the, the light of the world. <clears throat> The next point I want to look at is Jesus <clears throat> revealed through his word. And I'm not going to take the time, but uh, we, we know that at creation, it was God uses the term, let us, let us make man. For instance, let us make man in our image. Who was with God at creation? And I think... Uh, we all agree it would have been the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we also see that in, in John chapter 1, 1 through 5. Jesus revealed through his word many times, starting at creation. And there's also a couple other times, and just for interest, I want to look at another account that I always was sort of intrigued with. Turn with me to Joshua 5. We have an account here of Joshua who was getting ready for this battle. He was leading Israel to the promised land and they were preparing for, I think it was preparing for this battle at Jericho. They had been defeated at Ai. There was sin in the camp that was dealt with and God addressed that in a very severe way and prepared them for this next battle, which just read about that this morning, Sunday school. But here they were getting ready for this big battle, and the people of Jericho were really scared. Uh, let's read in Joshua 5, and this is the account when God, or Jesus, appeared to Joshua in person. Let's read Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn, sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? Are you with us or against us? Joshua needed to know this right away. This is important to him. <clears throat> Verse 14, and he said, nay, this is, this is God speaking, or Jesus, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and did worship, and said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. <clears throat> and then, the next chapter goes on to the instructions that were given to him by God or by Jesus. And I, I thought that's interesting. Uh, you know, there's many cases where it says an angel, and I had to think of Abraham and Sarah. There is, it says three angels came to visit them. And I'm not going to split hairs as to who those angels were. But three angels came to them. There was one that also came to Abraham and several times like that, but I like this one especially because we have one person coming to Joshua and addressing, meeting him personally and speaking to him, and of course in the next couple of verses, next chapter, 
the instructions are given as to how he's going to fight this battle and win in Jericho, which was very, how much you say, unconventional warfare. Who marches around the city and doesn't say words, just total silence, and then does it again six days in a row, and then the seventh day they do it again seven times, and then they conquer it. Very unusual. But we, we again see uh, Jesus being revealed in Scripture, throughout scripture right from the beginning of creation several times throughout and then of course the prophecies that we have his birth was prophesied many times even as specific as in micah 5 2 where it was prophesied that he was born in bethlehem even the specific town isaiah 9 talks about him being a ruler uh, a baby being born who will be a ruler Genesis 3.15 talks about him destroying the work of Satan. And then all the way back into Revelation where he will return to the earth to rule and to reign. Revelation 17.14 and chapter 19.16. So we see that Jesus was revealed through his words quite a few times throughout scripture. Many types and shadows, if you will, of, of him as well and his work on, on Calvary. We have quite a few and I won't take time to get into that. But Jesus revealed through his word many times from starting at creation, evidence of uh, a testimony of him being at creation and then several other times throughout the Old Testament and then of course his birth and the life that he lived on earth and then his ascension, which brings us to where we are today. He sent his spirit after he returned to heaven. I want to turn to John chapter 14. A couple of verses I want to look at there. Again, uh, just breaking right into the middle of this scene. This would have been a very intense time for the, for the disciples. Jesus nearing the end of his earthly ministry and telling them some disturbing things like, oh, I'm going to be out of here soon, guys. You're on your own. Not quite, but something to that effect. That's how they felt. And they were <clears throat> hoping, banking, counting on Jesus being the earthly leader and delivering them from Rome and ruling right here and now. But that was not God's plan Jesus had tried throughout his life to explain that to him multiple times. They didn't quite get it. Here again, they were just thinking right here and now. But John 14, let's read a couple verses starting in verse 15. And this is again part of that long conversation that Jesus had with his disciples just before his experience in the Garden of Eden that led up to his trial and his crucifixion. John 14, verse 15, if he loved me, Keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live ye shall live also. And I can imagine they were trying to make sense of this, probably had a very 
difficult time understanding what he's referring to, which I, let's not come too hard on them because I probably wouldn't have got it either. But we, we see Jesus making reference to the Spirit here several times. Um, the Holy Spirit gives supernatural power. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And again, I made reference to that earlier, that at Pentecost, when all these people were gathered in Jerusalem from various backgrounds, nationalities, languages, heard the, the disciples preaching, and understood in their own tongue something that was very unusual and supernatural. No one, no one, there was no interpreters there, but they heard what was said in their own tongue. We see God's spirit working through them. We also see he reveals truth to believers, something that you and I can take great comfort in. Is there ever a time when you really, or when we all want truth, need to know truth, the Holy Spirit will reveal truth. John 16, verse 13. Howbeit, when he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Again, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to reveal truth. I also like a verse in, I want to turn to that, James chapter 4. I like this a lot. It says he gives more grace. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, purify your hearts, ye double-minded, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. I like that one, especially verse 6. He giveth more grace. How much is more? Where do we start? What's, what's, what's more? Is there a minimum? Do you measure it? I, I, I don't know if I have the answer to all those questions. But I think the thought is he gives enough. Whatever you need, it's there. Claim it, ask God for it. He gives more grace. I like that. Also, he lives within us. <clears throat> And we have a good example of this in 1 Corinthians 16. This was a letter of the Apostle Paul to the Church of Corinth. And the Church of Corinth was a very um, wealthy, affluent, progressive, uh, busy church. Uh, there was a lot going on. There was a strategic location for some very good seaports. And there was a lot of, uh, that brought a lot of, uh, industry, a lot of commerce, and of course a lot of new ideas from the, the, the known world. And so here they were living in this, sounds familiar doesn't it, doesn't that sound like, a lot like us? They had a lot of things going for them that competed with their affection, their attention, their minds, their resources. But we have here, Paul reminds them in chapter 2, 
Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Again, this was a, uh, this was a, a church that in many ways, I don't know if he ever calls them a carnal church, but there was a lot of individuals that he addresses being carnal. Maybe carnal being sort of shallow-minded, kind of uh, thinking more of just living in the present, whatever, whatever suits you the best. That's the kind of lifestyle that a lot of these people were living in, and yet he tells them that the Spirit is living within you. Chapter 3, verse 16, Know ye not? That ye are the temple of the God, and that spirit of that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. He wasn't asking a question, he was stating a fact. The Spirit of God lives within you, in spite of your carnal heart, your carnal minds, your shallow lifestyle, the Spirit of God lives within you. And I think we can claim that as well. The Spirit of God does live within us and does really desire to teach you the truth and guide you throughout this life. He sent his spirit after he returned to heaven. Jesus certainly did not establish a kingdom on earth at that time. He was not there to overthrow the Romans and to rule in place of them, but it went beyond that, deeper than that, more of a personal thing in our lives so that we can have victory over the evil, carnal, sinful world in which we live. And then just briefly, one little comment on Jesus as the head of the church. Uh, this was even, um, there's even a, a verse in Psalm that refers to that the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner, taken from Psalm 118.22. And Jesus brought this to the attention of the Pharisees in Matthew 21, when he, he, he brought this to their attention, and they didn't like it. In fact, soon after that, they were thinking in their minds, how can they get rid of this guy? This guy is a major threat to us. And uh, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter, uh, I think it's in chapter 5, a couple of verses I want to read there. No, it's, I think it's in chapter, no wait, chapter 1 where we have this being brought out, especially of Jesus as being the head of the church. Ephesians 1, verse, verse 18. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenlies, heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head of the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him which filleth all in all. <clears throat> and there is certainly some other places we could go expand on that further, but uh, we certainly do see or believe Jesus as being the head of the church and, and, and again, looking ahead, the church being the bride of Christ and Jesus in some day will return 
for his bride to take her to be with him forever. And certainly we, we, we look forward to that. As I think of this, um, certainly this is a valuable treasure. I'm not even sure if I introduced my title yet, did I? Uh, I see this as a valuable treasure, this whole package that, that we have here with us, not just as being part of the brotherhood here, but in a personal way, being part of the family of God as we give ourselves to his work and embrace the calling of our lives and live under the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit. May God bless you as we go from here. Let's stand for prayer, and then we'll stand for closing song by Chad after this. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for your blessings on us. Thank you especially for this valuable treasure that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, that <clears throat> Jesus certainly was willing to die for us, give himself for us, and in that way we could be part of your kingdom, the kingdom that you introduced, the kingdom that you ushered in. In spite of the opposition from the world and those around him, even opposition from the religious leaders at the time, thank you that you have prevailed and continued with your plan. Thank you too, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, you have, you have given this to each of us, and that helps us to discern your will, to discern truth, and gives us the power and the grace to go on in the areas that you have called us to serve. So we pray your continued blessing. As we go from here, may, you, may we be able to live out faithfully the area that you have called us to, and may your will be done here on earth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.